I was able to realize that I could do more than survive, that I could thrive, that I could take this loss, this pain, this inability to imagine going forward with my life and turn it into purpose as a way to elevate my son's legacy and help other people. I finally came to this conclusion that my son couldn't really find his purpose on this earth mm. while he was living, and now we've found it together. Hello and warm welcome to the stories we tell. I'm Nitya Shanti, a teacher and facilitator of conscious living here at Round Glass. On this show, we share the gift of illuminating stories. Each week, you'll hear a life story from me and a special guest on a universal theme. Stories of self-acceptance, overcoming inconceivable odds, embracing change, and recognizing our limitless nature while honoring our humanity. Tragedy or strife creates heartache and suffering. And as much as we try to live a life surrounded by positivity, there is no way to completely avoid experiencing pain. Nor should we. Sadness is as much a part of life as happiness. Extreme loss can often feel random, almost cruel. And that's when we must do our best to find purpose through our own tragedy. I was seven years old when... My father had a heart condition. In fact, he'd had it from childhood. It hadn't been properly diagnosed. So there was a small surgery that had to be done. And so my mother and he decided to go to our local hospital here in Pune, where I live. And uh, the surgery seemed to go well, and he was recovering. Then they began noticing that his fever wasn't coming down for several days, and they felt something was off, even though the doctor said everything's fine. And they shifted him to a bigger hospital in Bombay. And while he was there, um, some relatives came to Pune and told me that uh, he's recovered, he's all good. And I was so happy, I was about seven years old, and my brother was about three years old. And uh, so we got into a car and we drove to Bombay, which is about four hours from Pune. And when we get to the parking lot in the hospital, then uh, someone comes with a very solemn face and tells me, Come, your father's dead. I was like, what? He'd actually died earlier. They had just told me that, have me calmer during the car ride. And uh, so obviously it's a big shock because I was almost celebrating to see my father and I get there to find he's passed on. And I was old enough, seven is probably old enough when you realize the finality of that. Perhaps my brother didn't quite get it. He was three years old. But I got it and I was... Confused, I was a little angry that I'd been told he was fine, but he'd actually passed away. Felt a little deceived. Apparently there was uh, some infection which happened during the surgery and they tried to cover it up and he didn't really recover from it. So that was, in my case, seemingly senseless loss and, and very sudden loss. I do remember someone saying, and you know, people say these things with good intentions, but they don't realize the impact it has. So someone... One of the relatives whispered to me saying, so your father's passed away now. Uh, you're the man of the house. And uh, so don't trouble your mother. Be a, be a man. <laughs> and 
I don't think that's a very smart thing to say to a kid. Uh, so I kind of suddenly felt that I shouldn't be a kid anymore. And I've got to man up and I've got to be there, you know, for my mother. And I did my best, of course. But I think it's all right to not man up. It's all right to experience suffering. It's all right to cry. It's all right to be afraid. It's all right to be a child, you know. Many years later, I think looking back now, it gave me a different kind of depth to my life where somehow I got into my head that I'll not live longer than my father. My father died when I was about 36, 38 years old. I got into my head that I'll also live about that long. So somehow I felt, since I'm only going to have a short life anyway, somehow I was you and I'm going to, not going to live long. I thought that, okay, let's really make the most of this life. And I asked myself, what is the meaning of life? And what is life? And what is death? And if some can, someone who's so healthy can just suddenly die, could happen to anybody, could happen to me. That's inspired me to read different kind of books and have different kind of experiences. And I was lucky at the age of 16, I got interested in meditation. So in my own way, I was able to process that grief and that way of looking at life. Today, I'm grateful that whatever happened, it made me see things from a wider perspective. And my father actually had a very, very full and very, he was very impactful, even in his short life, he was very impactful. Years later, when I would go and teach in various organizations and various places, they'd say, aren't you his son? Aren't you Ashok Khanna's son? I'd say, yeah, because he'd been there and he'd done sessions for them and he'd touched many lives in that way. So the echo of his life continues. Today, we honor Bradley Sonnenberg, a life that ended too soon after struggling for years with depression addiction, and an eating disorder. Faced with his tragic loss, Bradley's mother, Andrea Sonnenberg, became cocooned within her pain for about a year until a meal with a friend inspired her to become an advocate for mental health and to work to improve the system that is failing so many. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure to be here. And to hear your story, I, I really relate to that, how you experience this pain and this sadness that you think you can't handle, and you end up actually being able to take it and make something out of it. And that's sort of what's given me the ability to survive this tragic loss. I say that my story involves two stories because it involves the story of the tragic loss of my son, and then it involves the story of survival, of, of my survival. And the tragedy ends, as most tragedies do, with the death of the protagonist, and that was the death of my son at, at the age of 21. And the, the survival is, is my survival, but it was also a difficult story of survival, and it, it's peppered with hope and frustration and, and challenges. Now, let me first tell you a little bit about Bradley. He was a kind and caring soul, incredibly artistic, incredibly sensitive, very talented musician and singer and actor, but struggled with mental health issues from a very, very early age. His sensitivity was a good thing in some respects because he was deep and, and he appreciated people's feelings. But on the other hand, things were really difficult for him. It was sounds were too loud for him and surfaces were uncomfortable and tags on his clothes were, were annoying, that sort of thing. We would always say that it was hard to be Bradley. That was a saying that we had. And his discomfort led to an eating disorder when he was very young, only 11 years old. 
ended up having to be hospitalized uh, for seven weeks as an inpatient, had a situation where he almost drowned, stayed in the ICU for three days. He then had incredibly difficult experiences with behavior and couldn't get along with people and couldn't follow the rules and couldn't find a place for him. The system failed him. And we ended up having to send him to a therapeutic boarding school in Colorado, in a state far away from his parents as a young child. And as difficult as it was for us not to not be able to tuck our son in at night and be there for him as a family, he actually thrived there because he was in a community where mental health was not stigmatized. It was accepted. He was with others that were struggling similarly with the, the same issues that he was struggling with. And he really did incredibly well there. He spent almost two years there. And we visited, and we had incredibly wonderful times together when we visited. He came home, and he had three incredible years. He went to the prom in high school. He starred in all the musicals. He made friends. He did really well. But he still was struggling, seeing a therapist. He was still taking medication, doing what he needed to do, his mindfulness, his meditation, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, life was still challenging, but he was able to thrive. Then he experienced extreme, extreme fatigue pain and discomfort that we couldn't find the cause. And it was just attributed to mental health challenges. We tried all sorts of physical doctors, couldn't find a cause for his pain and fatigue. And he just sort of started spiraling into a deep, deep depression. He ended up starting in college, but had to drop out because it was just too difficult for him. And when he left the school, no one followed up. No one said goodbye. No one seemed to care that this young man was struggling and in such a bad place, and he just vanished from the school. He then went to different mental health facilities in the state, out of the state. He, we took him to a facility in Texas, to a facility in Boston, taking more medication for his pains, more medication for his mental anguish. Nothing seemed to work. He was constantly looking for the perfect pill. So we put him in a, in a sober living home because we thought that would be a facility where he would be with peers who are also struggling with mental health issues. Addiction most often comes is paired with an underlying mental health struggle. That's why they call it a dual diagnosis. Oftentimes it's the addiction and the mental health struggles. They were supposedly going to do mindfulness and group therapy sessions every day. Unfortunately, all this stuff didn't happen. And one night he complained of not feeling well. He was given some Advil. He was given his usual cocktail of medications. They don't monitor the medications at a sober living home. They just hand the medications to the client, and the client is responsible for taking them. They are not licensed. They are not regulated as they should be. He took his medications. He went upstairs. He grabbed a Red Bull on the way up, and um, he never woke up. I got a phone call at 9.30 that night from his life coach. And I know a 9.30 phone call at night is not a good call. And I said, is everything okay? And his life coach said, no, Bradley's gone. And I said, well, where'd he go? And he said, no, he's dead. And I just crumbled. My world fell apart. What really happens when you have such a tragic loss is you do come apart. You 
come apart piece by piece by piece, and you put yourself back together, kind of like Humpty Dumpty. And that's exactly what happened to me. And with the inspiration of this woman, I was able to realize that I could do more than survive, that I could thrive, that I could take this loss, this pain, this inability to imagine going forward with my life and turn it into purpose as a way to elevate my son's legacy and help other people. I finally came to this conclusion that my son couldn't really find his purpose on this earth mm. while he was living, and now we found it together. Do you feel that while he was alive, if he had identified that as a purpose, it would have given more meaning to his journey? I do think it might have, and we did not come to that. It took this loss for me to come to that conclusion. He would be humbled and proud to see the catalyst for change that he has become. There's so many things that I want to ask you. Uh, but first of all, I just want to acknowledge how, even though you've talked about the difficulties that Bradley had, it's also not easy being a parent to such a child who is sensitive and who is affected by the smallest things. And of course, he has so much of talent and genius inside of him. At the same time, every single day seems to be such a struggle. So I also want to acknowledge your pain and your challenge. And I also want to ask you, what is it like for you to every day balance yourself? I'm sure you have your own challenges in life and then you have to be there available for your son. What helped you be balanced inwardly? That's a really good question because I also had two other children. You're very pulled by wanting to help all of your children and give them all what they need but they all have different needs, and you have to be careful that you're not detracting from the attention that you provide to the other children because there's so much need by one. And, and there's actually even a condition called the unaffected sibling where the children who are not suffering, and it could be a mental health issue, it can be a chronic physical illness, any kind of severe challenge that one of the siblings is experiencing, you know, the other kids, it's very, very difficult for them. One of the reasons Bradley ended up going to a boarding school, the first and foremost reason was because there was not a school that could satisfy his needs here in Los Angeles. But beyond that, we wanted to have somewhat of a normal life for our other two children. One thing I highly, highly recommend is doing what it takes to stay calm. And I wasn't a meditator or a mindfulness person back then. We ended up teaching Bradley about mindfulness and he had a meditation teacher. And we didn't do that stuff when he was younger and, and when I was a young parent. And I wish I had. It's the whole oxygen mask theory. You have to take care of yourself first, put your oxygen mask on first before you can give the oxygen mask to the person that's traveling with you. Right. So you really need to take care of yourself. And that means meditation, journaling. And I think that therapy, to the extent that you have the resources and, and you can access therapy, I think it's really, really important for the parent as well as the child that's struggling. You're talking about all the things that I like to practice and advocate. So it's very nice to hear that. I am also curious because I also went to boarding school. And I'm curious if your son was, if Bradley was open to going to a boarding school, he's very resistant and skeptical about it before he went. 
This particular boarding school, my husband went to visit it first because I said, no way, my son is not going to a boarding school. <laughs> and my husband went first and he really liked it. It actually was this idyllic setting in Colorado, in the mountains. It was beautiful. And he came back and he said, it's amazing, Andrea. You need to go see it. So I went and saw it and, and I actually did like it too. And then we brought Bradley there. And the way that that school works, which I think is really incredible, the child has to ask to go to the school. Right. They want buy-in from the child. So they take the child to go get donuts, and they have a conversation (laughs) without their parents, and they talk about all the problems and and struggles that the child is having, and they explain to the child all the things that we're going to do at school here, and you're going to be in a small classroom with just a few kids, and you're going to get, you know, more Mm -hmm. attention, and you're going to go skiing on the weekends, and you're going to do, you know, group therapy, and you're going to have chores, and you're going to get points, and when you get more points, you get to do more things, and, you know, and, and they sort of explain the whole process, and Bradley wanted to go because he knew he had a problem, and he knew he was out of control, and he wanted to go because he wanted to get himself in a better place. A lot of boarding schools, it's like a lot of kids feel abandoned by their families mm-hmm. and they feel, why you put me here? Of course, as you go along, you do tend to like, I, I began enjoying my boarding school. You make friends and you get used to places and you like it. So, but this is very smart. And I remember when I was in Utah, I was invited to a similar arrangement for the kind of a boarding school for teens with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they were really struggling. They'd come from all over the country. And it was similar. So eating disorders, not only, as you know, it's not only about food. It's about the whole mindset, the whole attitude, the underlying mental health issues. And so it was uh, obsessive personalities, uh, addictive yes. personalities, a lot of pain and trauma. And so I had a chance to go in and speak to those youngsters. And it was very memorable for me. And I, I could see how they were normally young, uh, children that age uh, tend to be very distracted. But I thought that they were really listening to me because mm-hmm. <laughs> they were suffering so mm-hmm. much in some sense. Mm-hmm. And they were so eager to, to ask me and learn from me. And I, it was a very memorable experience for me to go there. So I could see how earnest they were. So I guess that's what even these youngsters here, getting a chance to be in an environment that's more supportive. I'm sure they got so much out of it. Yeah, and they have a sense of hope that they're going to get better and that they're going to get back to a life that they really want to have. And in a way, he did get better. Like you said, he came back and he had a good few years. You feel that there could have been more follow-up that could have helped sustain that? I think that the boarding school honestly saved his life because he was not eating and he was behaving dangerously. Then he almost drowned. And that's when Mm. I realized, I cannot keep this child safe. So the boarding school absolutely saved his life. And he came home and he had these incredible three years. And so I'm very grateful to that school and what it offered him. The problem is that mental health issues are cyclical. Yeah. When he came home, I thought he was cured. And I was, oh my gosh, I sent him to this boarding school. I sacrificed letting him leave our family, but he's cured. And it was worth it. And my husband said, no. He's not cured. He's going to have to manage this for his whole life. And that's okay. Then, you know, because it's cyclical, it came back again. He was older, so it was even more difficult because he's older and it's more complicated and there's more deep thoughts. And so when we sent him to college, the follow-up that I was disappointed in was with the college. When you leave school because of a mental health challenge, you shouldn't just disappear the university should follow up. What happened to this child? Where did we go wrong? How can we help? How can we get the child to come back to school? 
you know, and maybe if he had felt that connection and that concern and that compassion might've been a different outcome. So as part of the work that I'm doing in mental health advocacy is we founded a wellness organization at the campus at USC in his name, the Bradley Sonnenberg Wellness Initiative, where we provide a therapist and wellness programming and even a mental health curriculum for students at the USC campus. And now there's such an incredible crisis of of mental health, particularly among young people and among college students, we, we felt this was a way to help address all the challenges that these young students are facing. I definitely want to ask you about this pivotal moment about a year after Bradley's passing, Mm -hmm. where you were having a meal with your friend and that inspired you. So tell us more about that meeting and how could a meeting with a friend have such a big impact on you? One of the things that also really helped me in my grief was joining a grief group. And I highly, Mm -hmm. highly recommend a support group. For any kind of struggle that you're going through, I think a support group is life-changing. If you can find someone, and it doesn't have to be an official grief group, you know, or an official support group, you don't have to sign up for a one. You can just find people that are going through something similar, but maybe it's easier to join a formal group. Coincidentally, or 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 not, um, there were three other women in my community that had lost children right around the time that I had. So I joined together with these women, and we really bonded over what it's like to lose a child. People that haven't experienced it, they just don't understand. And people are loving and people are supportive and people are incredible and they are there for you, but they just don't understand. And that's why a support group for any kind of experience that you have, you feel like you're not alone. So I went to lunch with one of the women in my grief group who had lost her daughter a month before I lost my son. And her daughter had kept a journal, she was publishing her daughter's journals in the form of a memoir. And this friend said to me, what if you were to do something to create your son's legacy, elevate his life, memorialize his life, and help other people in the mental health arena? What if you were to do that? And I said, without an ounce of hesitation. I want to do that. I want to do that. It was like a spark went off. And I said, that's what I want to do. In that moment, I got purpose. I learned that this was going to be my path. It was shortly before the pandemic. And I took the pandemic to start working on telling our story. And my son laughs because he says, everybody, we all had all these grand ideas that we were of all these things we were going to do during the pandemic. It was going to, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to clean out my closet. I'm going to redo my, my office, all these things. He goes, but mom really did it. Mom took, mom (laughs) took the pandemic and put a 30 minute presentation together. And I'd begun sharing it with the world to incredible response to people emailing me and calling me and texting me all the time, sharing their stories, asking me for advice. I laugh because I say I've become an accidental expert. I'm not a mental health professional. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer and, a, and an educator. That's sort of my day job. I have mental health professionals reaching out to me, asking me wow. my opinion and my advice because I've been really 
through the depths of a mental health journey with a young person with an unfortunate ending. My purpose now is to help other people avoid that ending. I'm Jewish, and in Judaism, we say, if you save one life, you save the world. If I can help one person, then I have made a difference in Bradley's name. So it looks like all your training got you to put it together in a very compelling way, which activates the right brain and the left brain, tell a story and also back it up with facts. And where were the first time you gave your talk and, and how was it received? The first time I gave it was for a women's group. It was incredibly well received. People were crying, people were moved, people were curious, people felt I was so brave and so courageous. And I don't think we have to think of it as brave. Like we need to be communicative. We need to share. We need to talk about things. Part of what I talk about in my talk is that I wasn't open when Bradley was younger and we were struggling as a family. I was very ashamed, very lonely, and my life has changed so immensely. You realize you're not alone. So many of us are touched by mental health struggles. Everyone is touched. Everyone has a family member, a friend, a colleague. We all are either struggling ourselves or supporting someone that's struggling. And by being open and communicative and sharing, we can heal each other and we can help others get well. Part of my mission, too, is to really get us to equate mental and physical health so that they're the same. One just happens to be the brain, and the one is a different part of your body. Insurance should cover it the same way, and we should be able to talk about it the same way, and share about it the same way, and get access to it the same way. When we get to that day, I will be a happy woman. Can you give us an overview of this initiative for mental health, and what is it called? How can people learn more about it? How can they access your talk? What are some of the things you've taken up? It's called the Bradley Sonnenberg Wellness Initiative. It's at USC Hillel. It is mental health services for students at USC at at the university. Any denomination, any religion, any student that, that needs mental health services, they're available. There's also wellness programming. So they do hiking and mindfulness classes and yoga. And they did a self-defense class, you know, a way to feel empowered. So that so there's all different kinds of activities. And then a really cool thing that we're doing that is a pilot program right now is a wellness curriculum. And we have actually created oh. a mental health curriculum that we're piloting with a small group of 12 students over the course of 10 weeks and get it to a place that we're happy with. It's something that we're going to make available to colleges all across the country. So we're really, really excited about that. And then the other thing I'm doing like you is I have a podcast and it's called Getting Through. It is conversations with young people telling their stories, their mental health struggles, but how they get through. I want to provide role models, mentors, and examples for people to offer hope and inspiration for people who are struggling. So I interview people who are managing in spite of mental health struggles. You know, the title of the podcast is Getting Through, and it's a, I'm interviewing all these young people about getting through, but the irony is it's really me 
getting through by yes. by doing these <laughs> by doing these interviews and hearing these stories of inspiration and feeling like I'm giving these people a forum to share their stories is how I get through. Actually, just listening to your podcast and the theme of the podcast is so energizing, and I can I can imagine because sometimes when you get experts on 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 a show, then they're giving you their expert spiel mm-hmm. and they're talking from a from a perspective of we figured it out. But it's so powerful to listen to youngsters who actually they're getting through; they haven't gotten through, yes. so they're still in the middle of yes. it. So it's something very vulnerable about that. At the same time, there's something very inspiring that they're not giving up and they're doing the best they can with what they know. That's exactly right. I can right. imagine that kind of vulnerable conversation really touches people. And you know, it's interesting because I thought about putting experts on the podcast, like I was going to do a little bit of interviewing and then I was going to have like an expert and I sort of surveyed young people and they said, no, no, we don't want that. We hear so (laughs) many experts telling us what to do. We just want the vulnerable conversation. We just, we just want to hear the honest story. And that's why, you know, so that's how we ended up doing it in that format. What's been the response to the podcast? First of all, the guests are so thrilled that they're able to turn their pain into purpose. So they feel like their trauma and their difficult experiences are able to help other people. I have young people calling me, texting me, emailing me, saying things like, oh, I did that one trick that Henry talked about, <laughs> and it it's helping me, you know? Or I'm wow. one of my guests, she takes a little Altoid box, and she makes her little anxiety kit in an Altoid tin, and she's mm-hmm. got her stress ball and her note to herself and all these wonderful things that people actually can do. And parents of young adults are really enjoying listening to it because they feel like their adult children might not be honest and open with them about what they're really going through. And so they're getting a perspective that they might not otherwise get. So it's been really incredible. What have you learned about listening deeper and getting these youngsters to open up? What I've really learned is how important it is to listen. Research is now backing that up, that's saying that one phone call can make a difference in someone's life who's struggling. Really listening without judgment and without an agenda. Don't be worried about what you're going to say next or are you going to say the right thing. Like really listen and let your response come honestly and naturally and show compassion. When you do that, people will talk because they feel comfortable and they feel like you trust them and they feel like you care about them. And I do care about these people. I feel like they're all my kids, you know, and they're all succeeding in spite of these really, really hard stories. To be a good listener is so important. And the way to be a good listener is to be patient and kind and in the moment. Because if you're really listening and you're really present, the right thing comes to you from your heart. Be of lean expression, which means that if possible, speak in a way that communicates the essence of what you want to say so that you have other people have more chance to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I listen from my heart, not just to the words, but to the feelings? Can I speak from that place? And then I can I quickly hand it over back so that quickly in the sense, let people have a chance to, to use that space to express themselves. That's exactly right. And then something else, find things that give you joy. And if you can find things connected to the loved one you lost, listen to their favorite music, 
bake their favorite recipe, you know, things that are things that are joyful. Mm-hmm. So it's not always about being sad because you lost them. My son was this incredible singer. I mean, he sang like an angel. He was unbelievable from the time he was a little boy. I used to sing when I was younger. And I stopped singing because I was busy mm-hmm. lawyering and mothering and all that kind of stuff. And after mm-hmm. I lost my son, I started singing again because I wanted wow. to stay connected to him in a really joyful way. I sing in front of people now. I sing at my synagogue and I, I sang the national anthem at a luncheon the other day. And it's all channeling my love for my son and something that he loved. How receptive has your community been to your initiative on advocating better mental health? Incredibly receptive because so many people are struggling. So many people reach out to me. When I give these talks, I'm very open about offering my email address and just feeling like you have someone that understands is half the battle. Whether you're the one that's suffering or you're the one that's supporting someone that's suffering, it's really, really important to feel supported and to get that support. So people have been very open. I'm really working towards reducing the stigma of mental health, like we talked about earlier, but we're not there yet, but we're definitely getting there. And I definitely feel like young people are much further along than people of my generation. So young people are much more open. I'm going to my therapist, got to go to my therapist taking my meds, much less shame. Everyone needs to realize that you're not alone. And that's why this kind of work is so important. You know, listening to people's stories and and realizing that life is difficult. It is difficult for everybody. And we all struggle and you're not alone. You can always find someone. You can reach out. If you are struggling with with suicide ideation, you call a suicide hotline. You know, if you're struggling with depression, you reach out. And, And as I mentioned earlier, one phone call makes a difference. So if you know of someone that's struggling, reach out to that person. Make the phone call. Make the time to visit them. Even if it's scary, because it's sometimes it's it's scary because you don't know what to expect and am I going to say the right thing? Sometimes you just have to be. You don't have to say. You don't have to do. You just have to be there. And a lot of times, when someone is suffering with grief, people say, "I don't know what to say. Like I don't want to say the wrong thing." And don't say anything. Just say, "I'm yeah. here for you. I'm here for you." And in whatever way you need me, you want to talk, we can talk. You want to just sit, we can sit. You want to cry, we can cry and just be. I noticed when I was in my initial stages of of really severe grief, people would sometimes avoid you, you know, because they don't know what to say. I mean, I literally saw someone cross the street to get away from me. And it wasn't personal. I know it's not personal. I know it's just scary. Like, what do you say to this person whose child died? And you just say, I am here for you. I'm here for you. And I care. And, and that's how you can, that's that's how you can be, that's how you can be supportive. 
And then the other thing you do is you really do show up. And instead of making an empty promise, like saying, what can I do? How can I help? You actually say, mm. I'm coming over with a casserole, you know, which, right. which reminds me that with physical health, people do bring cakes and casseroles. And with yeah. mental health, <laughs> it's, not, it's not true. You suffer in silence. Yeah. So, you know, I always felt I had this one friend and I told her that. And I said, you know, I feel bad because I'm so alone. And people don't really acknowledge yeah. the suffering when someone is struggling with a mental health issue. If, if your child has cancer, they show up with the cakes and the casseroles. But with yeah. mental yeah. illness, there's only whispers and silence. Mm. So the next time I yeah. met with her, she showed up with a beautiful rose, crystal rose. And she said, this is my casserole that I'm bringing to you, you know, <laughs> honoring the struggle and the suffering that you're going through. And I thought that was so beautiful and so touching. So, really you know, those are the kind that of is, things yeah. that you can do for someone without judgment, yeah. you know, without telling them what to do or how to do it, but just to be there, you know, and show that you care. Andrea, it's been a real privilege listening to you. And thank you so much for sharing so openly and so vulnerably about your struggles, your challenges, how how all these things happen in your life. You must have told the story so many times. And yet you've shared it with a kind of freshness and you've shared your own journey and all the many things you've learned along the way. Listening to you, I was reminded of a talk I heard yesterday where a person shared a dream he had, kind of an angelic figure came and gave him a bowl made out of wood, a very, very, very precious kind of wood. And the bowl had a kind of crack in it. And the angelic figure said to him with a lot of delight, look at this, it's perfectly broken. And the idea of being perfectly broken, that we are precious at the same time we are broken, but we are perfectly broken. And to recognize all the parts of ourselves we like and we are comfortable with and also the parts we are not comfortable with, that they're all part of the wholeness of who we are. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And where can people find more of your work? SonnenbergAL.com and GettingThroughPodcast.com. They can learn all about me and my work and can reach out to us for any questions or if they want to make connections with me, I'm here. Thank you all for listening. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of Stories We Tell. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're looking for new ways to explore conscious living, then please subscribe and join me on the Round Glass Living app in addition to this podcast, you'll find courses, classes, recipes, music, and more to help you make positive changes while doing what you love. Until next time, I'm Nitishanti. Goodbye. The Stories We Tell is a part of Round Glass. Holistic well-being at your fingertips. Find out more at roundglass.com.